Ah, look at all those faces. Hello there. Let's see, am I talking through here? Yes. And I have to stay here so people can see me? This, no, I mean on, on it's that's right. I like to move around. <laughs> so, Reverend Kenneth, thank you for that introduction. And I want to tell you the other part of my story. Not all the professional accolades and accomplishments, but who I am as a person, right? But I want to start by saying that when you read the scripture, it was written thousands of years ago, at least hundreds, if not thousands, and there are things that might be updated now. Did you see any? Yeah, I mean, pointing out tax collectors, for example, <laughs> and pointing out pagans, right? As if those people would do something different because they're different kinds of human beings. <laughs> Did y'all see that? And not that, so what I want to say is, is that when people gave themselves to writing the scripture or having the experiences with Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whatever the case may have been, right? That that was then, and that was good, it was fantastic, in fact, but this is now, and we get to add to that story, do we not? Okay, so I just wanted to state that respectfully, honoring what that is, and that we've kept it for a long time, and that it has held us and uplifted us and given us what we've needed, and now it's time for us to add to it, I think. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> and I have one of those. My partner will tell you that. <laughs> yes, that's my partner of almost 27 years sitting back there, Dr. Sananda Ananda Maynard. Our anniversary is on March 12th, so we've got a little bit of ways to go, but not far. All right, so my personal story. So we're talking about, this is Black History Month, and I was invited to be your speaker for Black History Month. Thank you very much for having me. I love doing this work around racial healing. I love doing any work that has to do with transformation, but in particular, the work around racial healing. And I'll tell you why. Let's see. <clears throat> so, I have a favorite story that I like to tell, and I'm going to tell it in a shorter version today. But I grew up in Detroit, but my mother was from Alabama, and my father was from Mississippi. Now, I spent most time with my relatives on my mother's side. That happens often, you know, right? And so my grandmother, my mother's mother, was what I call, I describe her as a white-skinned woman. Now, her skin was actually white, for real, I'm not kidding. Um, she was half Irish, at least we believe that it was Irish, although it might have been Scottish as well, um, and half Native American, Creek. Her eyes were green, and she had straight hair. Okay. 
And she was married to my grandfather for her whole life until she died at the age of 77, who was a brown-skinned chocolate guy for real. He was black, you know, no kidding. And, and they had four children. My mother was the only girl. She was the second to the youngest, and they had two older boys and a younger boy as well. And the story was, is that my grandmother wasn't, not, not my grandmother, wait, let me take this back. Yeah, my grandmother. I had to think about it for a second. My grandmother was an illegitimate child. Now, she was the product of a love affair between her mother, who's Creek, and her father, who was the town doctor, who was Irish-Scottish, right? Who was definitely white, who was married to a white woman who had white children. However, he had a mistress, my great-grandmother, for her whole life. That was the only man she ever had in her world. Everybody knew this story, but nobody talked about it outwardly. <laughs> Now, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was the most highly educated woman in the community. She was both a teacher, she was a nurse, she was a midwife, she was just really, you know, she had it all together. Why? Because her father, her secret father, educated her and made sure she had every single thing that she needed and or wanted. The other thing I want to say is that he also took care of his mistress as if she were his wife. She didn't need to have other men in her life because he took care of them for all of the things that would normally happen in a domestic situation. He also came to visit. Now, this is a story that I just learned recently. I have a cousin who's 90 years old, my first cousin. And I said, do you know anything about our great-grandfather? <laughs> and she said, well, which one? I said, well, you know, we don't know his name. We don't know his name. I said, but he was the one that was rumored to be the town doctor, and he was the one who, and she said, oh, yeah, I met him when I was five years old, 85 years ago. And she said, yeah, he would come to the house, because she often visited my grandmother, our grandmother. She was her grandmother as well. And he would say, go in the house and tell your grandma that her father is out here. And now, my grandmother lived with her black husband in the black section of rural Alabama, right? And so this white man would come and visit whenever he felt like it, and everybody kind of knew what he was doing. And I just want to say something about that, because I believe that he decided that he was going to go against all of the status quo, that even though he was going to live in the way that he was expected to live and show up in the role that had been given to him at birth, that he still was going to ignore that and take care of his the woman he loved, the brown woman that he loved, and the child that they had made, who was white-skinned, but yet, you know, um, she used to pass for white, by the way, my grandmother. She would have my grandfather drive her into Montgomery. They lived about 50 miles away from Montgomery. She would have him drive her to the outskirts of town. She'd get out of the truck. She'd go and shop like a white woman. She'd get all the good cuts of meat, <laughs> all, the, all the beautiful fabric, all the stuff that black women can't buy. 
And we had those kinds of things at our house because my grandmother would pass when she needed to, and then she'd go back to her life. Now, and here's another piece that I want to say. It's a very colorful story, and you would get enthralled by it, but I'm not here to tell you this story. But I'm going to tell you one more piece of it. My grandfather, her husband, my grandma's husband, Grandpa Ben, he was the best moonshine maker in all of Alabama. Now, so everybody would come. It didn't matter what color they were, the white folks, black folks, you know, in-between folks, whatever they were, they would come because they wanted his white lightning. And when they came, and I, was, I used to go visit in the summer, I, they'd come on the porch, they'd say, Mr. Ben, you got something for us? And they called him Mr. Ben. Now, they ignored that his wife looked white because the product that he had available for them was so good that they didn't even want to disturb that, right? It's like, okay, Miss Julia Bell and Mr. Ben, we come and see you, you give us what we want, and we just ignore it. But also on their porch, there was multiracial connections going on because people would be sitting on the porch with those uh, mason jars, okay? Drinking the white lightning, sometimes they put Coca-Cola in it. Some people were shaking their head, you kind of know what I'm talking about. All right, yeah. And they'd be talking and things would be the way they were and everything was fine. And it didn't occur to me until, you know, many years after, I used to go there when I was a child, I'm kind of not, not a child anymore, but <laughs> um, I realized that actually they were doing racial healing work on that porch. Maybe they didn't call it that, maybe they didn't even think about that, but that's what I feel that they were doing. And so I feel like I'm carrying forth the legacy of my family. And so that's the other part of my story. Now, I've introduced myself. <laughs> Y'all know who I am. So I'm going to start by saying that Electronically, there's an entire sermon delivered by Martin Luther King Jr. on, let's see, what's the date? Yeah, November 17th, 1957. And it was in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Happened to just be there. And the name of that sermon is Loving Your Enemies. Now, you have some things that you picked up that have his version of what he had to say about this. So let me read this. And he gave us nine clues as to how, how, how to love your enemies. So here's what he said. I want, so I want to turn your attention to this subject, loving your enemies. It's so basic to me because it is a part of my basic philosophical and theological orientation. The whole idea of love, the whole philosophy of love. In the fifth chapter of the gospel, as recorded by St. Matthew, which is what we had up here just a few minutes ago, we need these, we read these very arresting words flowing from the lips of our Lord and Master. You have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, 
Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of our Father, which is in heaven. That was taken directly from that sermon, which you are, can you circulate it electronically? Okay, we will do that. It's a, you know, it's many pages, but if people have, if you have email addresses and you can send people or you can request them, you can see the whole sermon. Now, I'm going to just circle back to you, that ye may be the children of your father. What does that mean? So by the way, I'm a teaching minister, not a preaching minister, although I am ordained. I've been ordained since 1998. Um, and I do weddings and funerals, and I hardly ever deliver sermons. <laughs> but I do talk a lot in front of groups. So that's what I'm doing with you today. So I'm gonna treat you like one of my groups. So what does it mean for you? I'd like to have two answers, please. That ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. We're talking about loving your enemies. Why is he connecting those two things? Loving your enemies so that you can live as the child of our Father who art in heaven. Who'd like to answer? There's no right or wrong answers. Right, absolutely. So being an example of God's love and actually expressing the legacy of our creator, our father, by being just like the creator. Yeah. Another answer on this side of the room, maybe. Why would we connect those? Oh, you can be on this side. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I love that. All right, so we got a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, don't we? So he gave nine clues. So in that sermon, which you will get electronically, I hope, there's, and you also have a copy of it. So clue number one, He's, and this is extracted. So this is actually a several page sermon and I pulled out the clues and I highlighted the things that I felt were the most significant golden nuggets. So the first one was, I think the first thing is this, in order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. Hmm, what does that mean? In order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. So I'll give you an example from me, right? And I've been doing this work, I started in 1988 as a volunteer doing work around racial healing and building bridges to people that were different. I started getting paid for the work a little bit here and there. 
And then my son left the planet by deciding to take his own life in 1994. And so from 1995 until now, I get paid always for doing this work. It's my professional, it's one of, part of my professional portfolio. So I've worked with thousands of people at this point. But I can tell you that I'm not perfect. And that I still have bias. And that bias will pop up when I least expect it, because I think that I had this all handled, right? And then all of a sudden, something happens. So I'll give you a quick story. I'm working with a school. I do a lot of work with schools and administrators. And there are some staff members who are, what should I say? I know that they went to school, so they're educated. But they show up in a way that makes me feel like they haven't taken the time to polish their presentation of self, right? Maybe some of you all are shaking your heads, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I spent, I was a high school dropout, and I went back to school, and then I got a first, I got an associate's degree, and then a bachelor's degree, and then a master's degree, and finally a PhD. It took me at least 30 years for all of that. And I was ordained before the PhD. But the point that I'm saying is that in every step of the way, I understood that I had to constantly work on myself and show up in the most polished presentation I could. Whether I was dressed or speaking or treating other people in a certain way, that it was just really important for me to do that. And I think that that's a way of caring. And so when I experience these people that I'm interacting with that are new in my life, I've only been working with this group since about November of 2023, I find myself saying, hmm, you could do a different choice of words, you could actually show up not looking so disheveled, da da, you know, for real. I'm just telling you all the truth, right? And, and so, and then I go like, no, wait. They're doing the best they can, and you criticizing them, is that helpful? You know, I don't criticize them out loud, but even the thoughts, is that helpful? No, it's not. So I have to analyze myself and recognize that I am not embracing who they are so that perhaps I can be a part of the upliftment or showing them another way. And so that's one of my biases. So I'm telling the truth about that bias. I'd like you all to tell the truth to yourself about your biases too. Will you be willing to do that? If you're willing to do that, raise your hand. All right, I'm looking around the room. Okay, all right. Thank you, thank you. It's hard. It will stretch you. It will actually make you decide that, mm, I don't know if I want to do this. But it's worth it. Because of all those billions of brothers and sisters that we have, because of those divides that are actually getting even more solid, right? We have to be in that space of recognizing that in order to build those bridges across to others that are different, it's our responsibility to reach them. And sometimes the reach is just a smile. Sometimes the reach is a compliment. Sometimes the reach is an actual substantial exchange. Sometimes it reaches a relationship or a collaboration, all kinds of ways, but reaching for people that are different and that would, especially those that have been across whatever divide that we're talking about. Sometimes it's gender divides, racial divides, social economic divides, all of those. But 
The first clue is to analyze yourself. And that means look at what's in your way, right? Going on to clue number two. And again, because I only have a short period of time, I'm not going into complete detail about all this, but I am giving you a little bit of my thinking about why he chose beloved Martin Luther King Jr., why he chose these clues. So clue number two. That is why I say begin with yourself. Now this is extracted from a paragraph. There might be something within you that arouses the tragic hate response in the other individual. Now, do you know that when you feel a certain way about people, that they can feel it, sense it? Do you all know that? Do you know that when you come into a room or in, your, in a space or a group and you say, I feel like that person doesn't like me, it's because you can literally feel it, right? So if you feel like you don't like somebody, they can feel it too. So what is going on inside of you? Like what's going on inside of me? The young woman, there's one woman in particular that I was describing when I was talking about the new group of people just now. When I come into the room, she doesn't smile at me. And I thought about that the other day when I saw her, actually. It was just last Thursday this week. And I said, she doesn't smile, and almost everybody else does. Why? Because what's inside of me that's arousing at least the feeling of indifference, if it's not a hate response, you know, am I projecting that? And the answer for me is yes, that I have something to do with that, right? And so we have to recognize that a lot of times when people don't like us or think they don't like us, it's because they haven't felt us. Right? And, you know, like you were in a public place, for example, like say on an airplane. I have sat down, and in fact, I was just on an airplane not very long ago, and I was three across. I don't like being three across on an airplane. It's not my favorite thing. And um, the gentleman who sat down last sat in the middle, and he was, um, I was coming from Florida to LA but we stopped in Nashville, Tennessee. And he got on the plane in Nashville, Tennessee. And I sometimes have reactions to men from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, I mean, for real. Um, again, I'm very forthcoming and telling the truth. And so I, I caught myself, I was like, okay. So I said to myself, all right, Aaliyah, what's inside of you that's not feeling like you want this man to sit next to you on the plane, because if there was somebody else there, you'd probably say hello. So I said, hi, how are you today? And he looked at me like he was surprised that I actually spoke to him. And I said, it looks like it's cold in Nashville, Tennessee, because we had just left Miami, Florida. It was quite warm. And everybody came all, you know, they were all uh, wrapped up. And he said, yeah, it's very cold out there. And so I had to remove that barrier between he and I. That's what clue two is about. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. So when it starts to happen in your world, what will you do is the question. Clue number three. And, again, this is an extraction. This simply means this. 
that within the best of us, there is some evil, some dark. And within the worst of us, there is some good, some light. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude towards individuals. Now, we've all known sometimes when we've acted up or acted out, right? And we get embarrassed sometimes when we think back on what it is that we did or said. Um, but we are also aware of the core of goodness that exists within us. And believe it or not, because they couldn't be children of God without it. Human beings could not be children of God without a core of goodness somewhere in there. Now, maybe they're not in touch with it, but perhaps something that we say or do, like saying, hi, how are you doing? It looks like it's really cold out there, could bring that forth. And he could think of me as a, a neighbor that was just checking in about the weather. Okay, is this making sense? Yes. Okay, all right, very good. So clue number four. Another way that these are all ways to love your enemy. Another way that you love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time when you must not do it. Okay? What if, whoops, People who had the ability to start wars lived by this. Will we have wars? No. No. When you have the opportunity, you know they used to say, kick somebody when they're down, for example. That's part of this. There's so many ways that this can be played out, sometimes small, even minute sometimes medium-sized, sometimes large, sometimes enormous. When you have the opportunity to defeat someone that you have thought of as your enemy or represents who you believe to be your enemy, that's the time to not do it. Why? I'm going to ask questions again. I want a reflection or two. Why? Why would you not do it then? What would that, yes? You might cross a line that you're going to regret. You might cross a line that you will regret? Yes, for sure. Regret meaning that what actually flows from that is not something that you want to handle or want anybody else to have to experience either. Why else would you not do it? To be an example. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, a lot of the things that young people pick up on, even when you think they're not listening, like they might be drawing and, you know, you can... <laughs> 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 right. So they're hearing, they're hearing what we're saying. No, even if they're not in the conversation, even if they seem to be across the room, even if they seem to be distracted doing something else. And it doesn't have to be children that we're talking about, but people, period. Everything that we do. You know, I actually have the great honor of interacting with the LAPD. 
And a lot of people in my life go like, really? You have friends in the LAPD? I do. I have actual friends in the LAPD. I had one of my long-term friends from 2016. I needed something for this new school I'm working with just recently. And I wanted them to be a part of the Safe Passages program. And so I emailed my friend in the LAPD. And I said, can you point me to somebody who can help me? And she said, absolutely. She immediately emailed her colleague. Her colleague wrote me, and this is, I'm not even paraphrasing. It says, any friend of Ruby is a friend of mine. What is it that you need, right? And I was like, well, here's what I need. <laughs> and, and did I get it? Absolutely, quickly. All right, I said, I need to have you be a present for a meeting in about five days. And then seven days later, I need you to show up in person. They did both of those things. Um, and I'm just saying that the image that we have about police is about certain police officers, right? It's not about all police officers. And part of what I do, which is why I'm friends with the LAPD, is that I actually interact in a dialogue setting and sometimes even more involved processes to have young people get to know the humanity of those officers and to have those officers show themselves to those young people. And then eventually the trust gets built and the young people actually starts to show themselves to the officers as well. Um, and it's amazing what gets said and done. I mean, it's totally mind-blowing to see how a young person who hated police over here go through a process, and then they go like, no, man, they're all right over there, okay? And that happens because they show their humanity to each other. So I, those are my side stories. I have a whole bunch of those, y'all. Clue number five, the Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is the word agape. And agape is more than eros. Agape is more than philia. Agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men, all people. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men or humans, women too, right? Children as well. So this loving your enemies is about being love yourself. Being a person who knows that it's your honor, desire, pleasure to express love, to actually reach and, and touch people in situations and in unexpected ways that show up like the love of God beaming into the world. Y'all do that, right? Raise your hand if you do that already. At any point in time, even if you only did it once in your life, raise, raise your hand if you do that already. All right. 
Y'all are sheepish with those hands. I'm serious. You're going to raise those hands high. Okay? Yes, I do that. And I want to wait. And I want to learn how to do that better. Okay? So, that's clue number five. So, clue number six, we've only got a few more to go here. I think the first reason that we should love our enemies, and I think, and I think this was at the very center of Jesus' thinking, is this that hate for hate, that hate for hate, like hating people because they hate you, only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and go on and on and on, you see that goes on ad infinitum, right? So when, this is really hard, folks, okay? I mean, I just want to show up with the truth of this. When somebody has offended you, when your feelings have been hurt, when there's been a grievance that's taken place, it's really hard for you to be open to still connecting, okay? I, that's one of my specialties, is to help people to still connect, even though some stuff happened, all right? And, and so... The point is, is that if, you, if I meet your hate with my hate and you meet my hate with your hate and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, my goodness, when will it ever stop? Never. It will never stop. So we have to learn and get better at. These things are practices, by the way. This is not like you wake up tomorrow morning and because you heard me say this or you read it on this paper that you're going to be all perfect. Oh, no. No, this is a practice. And even when you think you got it down, like when I think I got my biases down, you realize that they pop up and you have to practice some more. So these are practices. So when that happens, when there's been a breakdown, see if you can be the one to break through to the connection again. When there's been a breakdown, see if you can be the one to break through to connecting again. That's a challenge and an invitation that I'm extending. Okay? Yes? yes. Say yes. Okay, good. All right. So, clue number seven. Men, and this time I put the word people. I got sick of him saying men. It's like, okay, men, women, other folks too. Men, which must see that force begets force, that hate begets hate, that toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that by love. Now, think about this for a second. And I, I want you all to really contemplate this. I'm going to see if I can paint a picture. So every single thing that has ever happened here on earth, as we've been human beings here on earth, a human being has done it. No matter what it is. All right? 
Things in nature, I'm not talking about those because God does that, right? But everything else, the chair that you're sitting on, somebody created it, the clothes that you're wearing, somebody made them, the instruments that were played, somebody made them, right? Somebody built this building. You all made families, the people sitting next to you that you care about and love, you made them, all right? Those that are in relationship, you have created those relationships, you've made those commitments. Every single thing comes from human beings. So everything that we would want to address and change, we, we, you and me have the ability to do that. We are creators, okay? And so if I want light in my world, if I want love in my world, if I want things to be unified in my world, if I want to remove things from my world, I get to do that, not look to somebody else. Now, you may collaborate with me. You may partner with me. I may invite you. You may invite me. But really, it's up to you. Does this make sense? Yes. Okay. So every single thing that's happening, we are responsible for taking place. And we are responsible for all the good that gets created. And so create as much good as you, can, well, as you possibly can, even more than you want to sometimes. Like even when you don't feel like creating good. Yeah, create some. Decide to do it anyway. And I need to tell myself that sometimes too because I can get grumpy. But, you know, for real. That's me when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you. Amen. <laughs> All right. Two more clues, y'all. There's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. I want you to look down on the paper and read this with me. Clue number eight. There's another reason why you should love your enemies, We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated or the individuals hated or the groups hated, but it is even more tragic. It is even more ruinous and injurious to the individuals who hate. Okay? So the reason why you would want to love your enemies is so that you are not destroying yourself with hate, to simply put it that way. So that I am not destroying myself with hate, okay? And I see these shaking heads, and I thank you for speaking out loud, because that was an important one. And then clue number nine. Now there is a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. And it is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love 
is the power of redemption. Okay. Yes? yes? Okay. Now, I did not start my clock, which is what I thought I was going to do when I got up here. You know, I'm, I usually have a timekeeper sometimes when I'm doing this professionally because I just go all, keep going. But here's what I would like you all to do. And you can do this easily because you're close to each other. I would like you to have a pair-share moment, a few moments actually, where these things that I read out loud and the things that I've said and the things that you've thought and felt when I've said and read and that you've read as well, I want you to tell your partner, you're going to go in pairs, two people, and if it, it might be one three-person, three people in a group, why something stood out for you that was said. Now, just pick one thing, literally just one thing. Not the whole thing, okay? Just one thing, you know, something, something is usually on top. I would like you to take a minute and a half and do a monologue. That means that one person speaks, and then I'm going to, I am going to set my timer for this, and then a minute and a half for the other person to speak, right? And then another minute and a half, this is all going to be about five minutes all together, where you get to dialogue. So you talk about what it is that you heard each other say. About the subject of loving your enemies and all of these nine clues, okay? So I'm looking at the group right now, and it looks like many of you are sitting next to somebody, but some of you are in threes. So if you are sitting next to somebody that you'd like to talk with, stay there. And if you need a partner, please get up and go find one. Don't start yet. Don't start yet. Don't start yet. I love it that people just jumped right in. Good group. Thank you for this. Thank you for making me feel welcome. All right. So I'm setting my timer for a minute and a half. And since you're doing Zoom, right, I can step out here a little bit. Good. Um, and so remember, one person at a time. And then dialogue. So the person who's speaking, just tell whatever your truth is for that minute and a half, and then I'll give you a warning and say, finish your sentence. And then the person who's listening, take it in. Don't think about what you're going to say, please. Only listen to the person who's speaking to you. And then you're going to have a chance for dialogue, okay? So the person with the shortest hair gets to speak first, okay? You may start. <laughs>
okay? The time is about up, so I'm going to go. You've got about seven seconds left. Seven seconds for the first person. Seven seconds. You may now stop. You may now stop. Take a deep breath. Hmm. So the person who was speaking, you probably weren't finished, and that's okay. And the person who was listening, you probably wanted to hear more, and maybe you will after you do the dialogue. But now it's your turn, the person who is listening, to take about a minute, minute and a half, some of you with three, you might have to take around a minute, and discuss what's most important to you, what's on top for you about this concept of loving your enemies. And you may now start. The other person. About five seconds left for the monologue, about five seconds left. You may now stop. You may now stop. Take a deep breath. Taking a deep breath helps to reset the moment and revitalize us. And also 
have us remember that breathing is one of God's greatest blessings, because without that, we would not be here. Mm. All right. So for about another minute and a half, and I might let it stretch to about two minutes, but I want you to talk together now in a dialogue. So you can talk about what each other said or whatever, but it won't be too long, and I'm sorry that it's shorter than I'd like it to be, but we don't have a lot of time tonight, so you may now start. About 25 seconds left for the dialogue. About 25 seconds left. You may now stop. You may now stop. Take a deep breath one more time. Yes. Look around the room at all the people that you can see their faces of. Just check them out. We're here together. This is our community for tonight. This is the work we're doing. Okay, so now we're going to have a quickie. I would like anybody who would like to, to raise their hand and share a piece of what it is that you shared with your partner or in the dialogue about this subject so that we can have, the people on Zoom can't hear what it is that happened, for example. And I would like to hear some of what the conversation was too. So who would start? Okay, perfect. Okay, <laughs> this is Devana, and um, I, you know, I wanted to share about, uh, it says the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy. That is a time which you must not do it. And, <laughs> um, you know, I'm obviously, you know, when you're um, connecting with people, um, that, 
that happens, you know, often. And I was sharing with Mylene that um, for me, it is a practice to just not do it, you know, and it doesn't happen overnight, but if you continue to practice just not do it, um, then we, we begin to build our self-discipline, you know, as a person. And, um, and then, you know, then we begin to grow, uh, you know, and then the, 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 more, the more we're faced with times like that, you know, the experience from before influences this experience, you know, oh, wait a minute, this is another time. <laughs> well, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to say it. Yes. I want to. Yes. So, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Savannah. <laughs> Wonderful. Anyone else? Mylene, did you want to say anything since you were talking together? Okay. Um, let's see. This is Mylene. And uh, I was Devonna's partner, and I did tell her that I think she already exemplifies that quite well. I, I admire her for that. Um, let's see. For me, number five spoke to me, and that's the agape one, because I, I feel a lot of empathy. I just love people in general and humanity. And I feel that uh, when I'm... When I just feel great love for people, no matter who they are, without judgment, I feel that in those moments of exchange and conversation or hug or whatever, I really feel like the presence of God is within me. And I just feel an uplifting in my own spirit and a connection with, like, all humanity, you know. I'm not so good at the five, six, the ending ones, you know. I'm trying to work on past, you know, past hurts or whatever. But I still feel a great love for, like, everyone, even though that I consider that I have broken relationships with. I still have a great love and concern for their life and everything. I'm just not sure how to get, engage back in their life or fix things that happened in the past. But I definitely still have a love, and that keeps me connected. Well, then you know what your next step is, right? To find out how to make that next step to... I'm working on it. I need to go to more <laughs> classes. <laughs> All right. Anyone on this side of the room? Clicky share? Or Okay, great. This is Ingrid. So uh, the one that stood out for me the most was clue number eight, where it says there's another reason why you should love your friends, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. And I can attest of that. I used to be a very sweet, outspoken uh, child, but then, you know, my father was very rough with me, you know, even physical. <laughs> so I started growing that hate towards him, became rough and quiet, uh, introverted most of my um, teenage and 20s. It changed my personality. Mm -hmm. And even throughout my 30s, I kept in touch, but it wasn't like a good relationship until like the end of my 30s when I was pregnant and he apologized to me. And um, that opened up our relationship to a better path. And I was able to let go of many things. And um, now that I'm a mother, um, I was telling my husband that I try to think every time I'm going to act on something, sometimes I get angry. You know, my child's doing something she's not supposed to. Then I stop myself and I think, I don't want to be like my father. I don't want her to have to heal the way <coughs> I had to. And so that's, that's what like hit me the most, I think. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that vulnerability of you sharing that. 
I really appreciate that you trusted us enough in this group to say that out loud. And I also want to say something about how children are impacted by adults. So, you know, we can say parenting, you know, is probably one of the most sacred roles that we have. It's very hard. Yes, I heard that. I heard that. Um, but even if it's not our own children, any child that we're near, any adult being around any child, it's know that you have the ability to mold and shape the formative years of a being, a human being, and that there are things that you do and say that you might, like I said a few minutes ago, you might think they're not listening to you, but they hear you. They can feel everything. So know that uh, it's a big responsibility for us to be adults and have children in our midst. Whether they're our children, our own children, our grandchildren, our nieces or nephews, or whether they're students that we have to interact with, or whether they're just some child that happens to be in the grocery store at the same time as us. Anytime an adult is around a child, you are you have the opportunity to imprint them in some way. And think about how big that is. That's really big. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, folks on Zoom, hi. <laughs> I don't want to ignore you at all, but I can't see your faces because I'm over here and you're over there. But please let us know what you would like to share. Just unmute so we can hear you. I would invite somebody to please do that so that we can bring you into the circle too because we want to hear your voice as well. Somebody? Yes. Well, I'll say again, please know that we're paying attention to you, too. And I'm hoping that you're hearing and participating in your own way, and we would love to hear your voice. Um, maybe one more? Yes. I have a question for you, and I don't know if we should do a mic. I don't know if time for a question, but I, I wonder if you would like to respond to the idea of... Um, when there's a problem between people, if one person is perceived of as having more authority or power than the other, is there a difference in what our responsibilities are, whether we're the one that's perceived of as with less power or with more power? I think that what you're saying is that if there's a breakdown in a relationship between two people and they have a different level of authority in the space, right? Would it be... Uh, would it, would it be, yes, no. I feel that as long as we're in our humanity, it doesn't matter. Like, in fact, when, um, when, we're, when we're talking about authority, like I, I refer again to the police department because I've interacted with a lot of police, and pol police are expecting that you're going to buck their power, okay? They're expecting that you're going to do that. 
And one of the things that you might say is tell the truth. Like, sir or ma'am, you know what? I realized that I just ran that red light. And you know what? I'm having a really funky morning. And I was totally being irresponsible. And I'm sorry. And perhaps you're going to give me a ticket. But I would hope you would give me the benefit of the doubt. Because I'm late for work, whatever, OK? But when you show up like that, that's actually disarming. But when you show up with, you know, I didn't, okay? And in, in personal relationships, too, there's this kind of thing, like male and female sometimes, sometimes. And because we've been conditioned in gender roles, it's not our fault. That's the way it's been in the world, right? And, and I, I can remember years and years and years ago when I was married to my son's father, who was a male and I was a female, he used to say, you can't talk like that to me in front of my friends. And I'd go like, so what are you saying? That I can talk that way to you as long as they're not around, but you want me to turn into somebody else when your friends are here? Uh, you know, really, do you, you probably don't know who your wife is because that's not going to work for me. But, but the point that I'm saying is, is there are so many constructs that exist that people don't expect things to be the way that they are. Now, what we did talk about, my ex-husband, my son's father and us, is how I could be more respectful when I have to say what it is that I need to say so that he doesn't look like a wimp. And I can get to that. But he said to me, he had to tell me, when you talk like that, it makes me feel disempowered as a man. And that was him being vulnerable, right? And so that, and then we got to an understanding. But anybody can start, anybody can do it, and I don't believe that the authority, the, that there's a power imbalance, really. Because who's the most powerful? The one who decides to be vulnerable first. You hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I hope I answered your question. One more, and then we have to stop. Okay. I'm Shay. Um, Ingrid, I was also um, like you. My dad was very, very well, abusive. Um, you did a really good thing by... Forgiving him, right? You forgave him. That's great. I did the same. One of the things I wanted to say, it probably isn't part of this, but you never know what another person is, like you said, is going through. So I've noticed in the many last many years, I'll say to someone that's not, you know, they're, they're checking me out. They're not looking at me. How's your day? Immediately, they'll tell you. Maybe it's not you know, how they're feeling, but they, they open up. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I got, what you were saying. That's what I got from, that's one of the good things that I'm doing, and I'm working on all the others yes. that I'm not. Yes. So I got a lot out of that today. Along with the rest of us, right? <laughs> we're all working on it. You know, um, I could go on and on and on, but I was given 45 minutes, and I think I've kind of gone over that. And I'm not even done yet because I have a closing for us. But I wanted to just give you a little bit of a context set. So this is Black History Month. 
And Black History Month comes every February, every year here in the United States. And there are some people like me, I identify as African-American and quote black. So I'm always honoring my heritage in, in many different ways. But Black History Month for me is not about whether or not we're honoring black culture. Some people think that that's what we're doing. And maybe that is what some people are doing and there's nothing wrong with that. I feel like Black History Month and uh, all of the other kinds of heritage months that we uh, honor here in the United States is a time for us to understand so that we can undertake true healing work. So oftentimes we, like George, I was talking to somebody recently about George Floyd. So in 2020, you know, in May of 2020, and then the, for the whole summer of 2020, everybody wanted to do racial healing work. I mean, like all the corporations, all the people, they were out on the street, everything was happening. Where are they now? Okay. <laughs> So what, what they were responding to, which was they were reacting and maybe even responding, but they weren't being deliberate in truly wanting to heal this thing that we call racial, mm, I'll call them racial barriers, but we used to call them racism, right? But the racial barriers that exist, the, the blocks between people of different races, and that's because we oftentimes don't understand the experience. So we have to understand before we undertake. So what are you taking with you from this time that we had tonight? From what it is that you said, your partner said, what it is that I said, what it is that was read, what it is that you just saw. I'd like you to take out your phone now. Really, I'm inviting you to do that. What are you taking with you? And, you know, you can do shorthand in your memos or whatever way you want to do it, whatever way you have your phone set up, but make sure that you record at least one thing in your phone. I can say that the reason why I chose those two videos as a black woman is because I know both of those things very well. I know about the look and I know about the talk. And sometimes when you're not black, you don't understand about the look. And you haven't had any reason to have the talk. But believe me, those looks and talks have been going on for generations, and they still are going on today in 2024. So that's why I chose those. And you can put in your phone what you felt about those videos. You can even put in your phone, I would like to learn more, or I have questions about this, that, or the other. But please put something in your phone. And I'm going to give you two minutes to do that. You have to understand before you can undertake racial healing work. You have to understand yourself, and you have to understand the others that you want to reach to. 
for the folks on Zoom, you saw the videos too, and you heard most of what it is that we did tonight. Please join us in recording what you are taking away from tonight's service. In your phone or maybe on your computer since you're already on the computer. <laughs> 